Root Simple Podcast. Low tech, home tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. In episode 19, Kelly and I discuss vegetable gardening with Christy Wilhelmi, author of Gardening for Geeks and the popular blog Garden Nerd. Welcome, Christy, to the Root Simple Podcast. Thank you. We're actually at Christy's lovely home. The first time we've gone mobile with the podcast. Woohoo! We only have two microphones, so you may hear Kelly and I pushing each other out of the way. Anyways, Christy, we were both at the Heirloom Expo in Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. And did you enjoy the expo? It was heaven. It really is where gardeners run away. Like, you know, if people want to run away to the circus, it's where gardeners go, I feel. Did you come home with a lot of swag and I did. items and seeds and things like that? I did. I even came home with a pilfered squash. I, <laughs> I <laughs> see your pilfered squash. On my counter I there, recognize that kind of squash. That yeah. is a turban squash or a Turk's cap squash. And I plan on saving the seeds. We'll see what happens because who knows how it was grown, but we'll mm-hmm. see. And uh, it's just so pretty and I had to have it. Well, people who haven't been to the festival, there's a huge display of squash and watermelons and tomatoes and other things. And my friend Dale and I discovered one year that if you stick around to the bitter end, you can just run off with all the goods. Mm -hmm. The first year we came home with the rental car full of like 20 watermelons, which wasn't very (laughs) smart because, you know can't really eat 20 watermelons all at once. That's Anyways, awesome. <laughs> Christy, you also did a lecture at the Heirloom Expo on small space gardening. Yes. And the first part of it kind of walked through what, you know, the challenges that urban and suburban gardeners might have in starting their garden. Um, you, you went through a number of methods because I know when I first got into gardening, I was kind of through all these books and sometimes a lot of conflicting advice and you walk through a number of those books and talked about kind of the advantages and disadvantages of each approach and i wonder if we could kind of step through some of those things today i, I think you started with biointensive is that, uh, is that right started with biodynamics biodynamics yeah. right so biodynamics with uh you know it was rudolf steiner's baby and it was the whole idea of treating a a farm or a garden as a living organism. And, you know, we as organic gardeners think about our ecosystem where we've got our garden itself and what's growing in it, but then we have habitat for beneficial insects that attract good bugs to the garden. And we have maybe bird feeders to attract birds to eat the, you know, eat the, the grasshoppers and other things that are eating things in our garden. And, you know, maybe a bat house on the side and other stuff like that. But they... They also, uh, the biodynamic folks, really go out as far as the cosmos. So there's the, the play of the, lun- the, the pull of the moon, the lunar calendar, and all of the things that go uh, along with that. And there are some scientific studies to back that up, that harvests and yields are higher, and um, you know, moisture content and nutrient content is higher if you follow the lunar calendar. So that's, that's kind of one thing. They also integrate crops and livestock, which is... Like, while on a small scale, we have chickens, but Biodynamics actually uses dairy cow manure pretty much exclusively because there's a, the way that the stomach processes their food, it becomes somewhat, they, they 
just find it to be ultimately perfect for making fantastic compost. And they also use what are called preparations, where they're mixing fermented herbs into a cow horn and burying that. And it basically inoculates the soil with microbes, which, you know, when you think about it, it's like yogurt. You know, I think of it that way anyway, where you're inoculating cream with yogurt and then it turns into, or, you know, with culture and it turns into yogurt. And it's alive. And so when your soil, as you know, as we talk about as gardeners, that it, if your soil is full of teeming, teeming with microbes, then, <laughs> then it, uh, it, everything grows better. Uh, nutrients are taken up better and all of that. So, so that's, that's the basics of biodynamics. They're usually growing, growing things in long windrows, but, well, they're doing compost in long windrows anyway. Then there's, uh, I'm trying to think if I forgot anything. I don't think so. Well, I think, yeah, I think you covered it. The lunar cycles and the the preps. Now, do you use the preps and the lunar cycles in your regular gardening practice? I don't. And I have to say, you know, it's more than I am able to do with the time frame I have. Um, I know you can buy the preparations online and all of that. But my understanding, and again, I don't know a lot about this end of biodynamics, but the the preparations are traditionally made and fermented inside of an animal intestine or stomach. And I'm vegetarian, so I'm not quite on board with that, mm-hmm. which I have to say I'm a bit hypocritical because I do use organic vegetable fertilizer, which is a byproduct, you know, usually byproduct of the the um, animal processing industry. So it's using the waste products and whatnot. So I'm trying to move away from that, but eventually, occasionally I have to do that kind of thing. Yeah, it always seemed to me that it was about focusing intention, mm-hmm. and that was the interesting thing about it. But yeah, you, you basically you have to be a hunter in order to to do the practices yourself. And I I always wondered if there was some way <laughs> to modify <laughs> Steiner's ideas and do it on a suburban level, stuff some chicken poo in a I don't know old Converse tennis shoe in an old shoe, yeah, buried <laughs> underground, and then. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but you also led led from that to the biointensive method, which is related through Alan Chadwick, right? right? Who and was uh, who actually knew Steiner, I believe, or he, knew, yeah, is so that right? Chadwick Chadwick actually took Steiner's work and the French intensive concept, which was the second thing that I talked about at the Heirloom Expo. Um, French intensive being. Uh, the du- double digging the soil to a depth of 24 inches to condition the soil so that it supports intensive planting in offset rows or hexagonal planting methods. And um, and they used a lot of horse manure, whatever manure was available, but at the time it was the transportation department, which was the stables down the street. So they would get the horse manure and load that into the beds and, and uh, compost it there. And their classic... The classic thing was uh, using the cloche to cover all of them. So they had their little mini greenhouses all over the, you know, the fields. And um, and they would plant in wide rows with no pathways in between. So you were place, you're placing plants really, really close together, shoulder to shoulder. And as they grew, they form a living mulch. And basically that helps retain water in the soil, blocks out weeds, and all of that kind of thing. So... Um, Chadwick came along and combined the French intensive practices 
along with some of the biodynamic practices. And John Jevons, well, Alan Chadwick started up at UC Santa Cruz, the, the farm up there, and it's gorgeous. Have you ever been there? No, we haven't. It's uh, I went up there as I was I was interviewing um, a woman who works on the farm up there for my book, and I got a chance to go and see what was going on. And they had it talk about. I mean, it 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 was it was a by an intensive farm in the sense that things were planted on top of each other and and thriving, and they were. They, it's like they had every row had. 16 different kinds of apple trees <laughs> and then underplanted with kale and chard and and you know herbs and flowers and things it was exquisite and uh, they're obviously doing some great work up there to make the use of the space that they have yeah and then you went on to describe Jevons's method right so Jevons took Chadwick's work and has been studying and testing it for 40 plus years and he's got you know, behind him, the concept that we need to really reduce the amount of space required to grow food, clothing, and oils per person on the planet because we're losing our topsoil uh, due to unsustainable farming methods. And when, uh, if you look at the difference between growing conventionally, which takes between 9,000 and 26,000 square feet per person, uh, Jevons was able to get it down to 4,000 square feet per person, which is pretty good considering our planet's population is increasing. So he's actually trying to get it down even more to like 1,000 square feet because a lot of people have close to 1,000 square feet, but not too many people have 4,000 square feet. I mean, Venice Beach, the lot sizes are 5,000 square feet, and that's mostly house. So, you know, it's just what it is. So um, he took double digging and um, hexagonal planting from French intensive. And he took farm as living organism and, and um, you know, the lunar calendar and all of that kind of stuff, the integration of crops and livestock from uh, biodynamics and put them together to create grow biointensive, which is his, his method there. And while I don't necessarily agree that double digging is the way to go entire, you know, he likes to double dig every year. I think you do it once, maybe twice if your soil is in really, really bad shape. But then after that, I think you just add compost and keep maybe, working on it. Maybe we should back up for people who aren't familiar with the, the raging debate around <laughs> double digging. Right. We should so you tell them what um, what uh, people disagree with with double digging. It used to be very standard. I think it was not questioned as much as it is now. So what's the new thinking on, on digging? Yeah, I think with the rise of permaculture awareness and the resurgence of the no-till garden that that, uh, that uh, Ruth, is it Ruth Stout, uh, who started that? Back she in was the, the compost queen lady, right? Who just layered tons of crap in her yeah, garden she, and she never weeded and she yeah and she had great yields have you ever seen the movie no oh there's she a documentary oh yeah it's 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 amazing actually I'll, I'll if i can find it i'll link to it in the show notes but she talks about gardening nude in it which oh is how very funny funny it's an old lady but anyways uh, yeah i'm sorry i interrupted you no that's okay she um she was the the original lasagna gardener right so she would layer 
um, straw and compost and cardboard and more compost and maybe some minerals and things like that. And then it would break down and she'd plant in it because she was like, I'm an old lady. I don't want to deal with this digging business. And it started to take off. And then the more the, the more the science came out around it, um, uh, especially with, uh, Jeff, sorry, Jeff Lowenfels, especially with Jeff Lowenfels, when teeming with microbes came out, the whole idea of the soil being alive and these long chain fungal hyphae starting to, you know, create themselves in the soil. And then we go and dig it up and have to start all over, which is not great. So the idea of no-till mimicking, you know, in permaculture, mimicking nature... Uh, the tradition of double digging is you condition the soil, you remove the top 12 inches in a trench, and you add compost and then work it into the lower 12 inches and then move the next trench forward and so on and so on and so on until you've loosened usually clay soil uh, to a friable, wonderful st structure. Um, and it's, it's good for people who need to get their clay soil in shape, but I think that beyond that, letting the soil do the work for you, the microbes do the work for you, is really a good idea. There's a, there's a permaculture trick to grow things in clay soil, like daikon radishes, you know, and they, the, the roots go deep, they break up the soil for you, you don't have to work, and then you pull them out, and your soil is pretty much tilled. We've actually seen that working, and it's it's miraculous. Down at, at the Huntington Gardens, uh -huh. the ranch at Huntington Gardens, um, which was uh, uh, planned and executed by Scott Kleinrock, mm -hmm. they uh, that that area was a parking lot. It mm. was the staging area for making the Chinese gardens. So big equipment had been sitting on the clay soil for a year. Uh, and everything was really, really compact. And Scott went in, in there and mulched the bejesus out of everything and then threw daikon radish seed everywhere. And we were there the first year it was open teaching a class. And we were actually, we were um, showing people how to dig because we were still in the, <laughs> and we, yeah. we took, we found a place to dig and we could not dig. We, I mean, the, the students couldn't dig. Eric, who's a pro digger, couldn't <laughs> dig. And we realized we would need a sledgehammer. Uh -huh. you know, dig. The next year we went back and we were trepidatious mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and also beginning to doubt the digging anyway, but we still went, we, but over that year, the daikons had grown there and that area had become amazingly soft and living. And it was just from the, the, the mulch, the additional irrigation and the daikons had right. done so much work. It was it really sold me on daikon. Yeah, and and it also, you know, we had a situation here at the house that really sold my husband in particular on mulch because he did not believe me when I said um, that we needed to mulch the entire backyard and it would solve all of our pooling and flooding problems because we have we have a slight incline here, so it the the backyard is high in the back and low toward the house, which is as you know not a great idea for your house's foundation, and we had pooling happening all over the place. And, and it was very uh, hard-packed. And I said, we just need to put down six inches of mulch on the whole backyard, and we won't have this problem. And he was like, no, no, I think we need to put in a French drain and all this other stuff. So we put down, we got 17 cubic yards of mulch. We put it down. Six months, five months later, no pooling, no puddles, no flooding, nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's because the microbes come in and break everything down and start uh, aerating the soil for you. So... Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a believer. <laughs> We're all mulch believers. Yeah. Uh, back to your talk, 
I think maybe the last thing you talked about was Mel Bar Mel Bartholomew's Bartholomew Bartholomew yeah square foot gardening method right square foot gardening is something that I think urban gardeners can glom onto really easily because it's it's orderly it's easy to understand and it utilizes small space really really efficiently. The idea of square foot gardening, um, Mel being an engineer decided that we need to stop doing things in long rows with pathways between them. Much like the other biointensive methods, the idea of planting things close together saves water, saves energy, etc. And in particular, he realized that the whole idea of sprinkling seeds, covering them, watering the whole packet of seeds, and then going back and thinning seeds out, it's such a waste of money, water, and time. And I thought it was brilliant. And he's like, "Plant, let's plant these right where they're supposed to go when they're mature. I'm like, oh, yeah, why didn't we think of that? So, um, so the notion of drilling a hole and twizzling a couple of seeds in that hole and then maybe going back and snipping out the ones that you, know, you don't want. I have seeds as a result in my storage containers that are almost you know, 10 years, 20, 15 years old, and they still sprout. I just... I just grew epizote that had the seed packet was from 2000, no, 90, it had a nine in there, <laughs> it was nine, 97, I think. It was one of my first seed packets I ever got, and it's finally germinating, you know, after all these years of trying and not succeeding, but my, like I finally got them to grow. But the, the part of that is seed storage, I will say. I, I store my seeds really well, so... We can talk. We'll about come that. back and talk. Yeah, about we'll come that. back with that. Yeah. So, but square foot gardening um, basically breaks down to a certain number of things can be planted per square foot. So, big things like tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kohlrabi. No, not kohlrabi, but those big things are one per square foot. So you put them in the center of the square foot, and then the next one in the center of that square foot, and they're twelve inches apart from each other. Um, lettuces um, need to be six inches apart. And on the seed packet, if you look at it, it says um, space after thinning is six inches. And so you start with that and you put seeds six inches apart, which is basically if you cut a square foot into quarters and plant in the center of the quarters. So it goes on with smaller and smaller um, place, plant placement or seed placement with root vegetables, 16 per square foot and things like that. And so... I I have beds that are four by four because you can reach in two feet all the way around and I have pathways all the way around. But it's adaptable. Square foot gardening is something that you can change. Like if you've only got a little space along the side of your house, it's just square feet. You just divide it up into square feet. And if you have children, you can make the bed smaller. You can convert it to an, a raised planter if you want to put it up on legs for someone who's got a bad back or is in a wheelchair you can put a bottom on a, a, a raised bed mel's thing it's kind of funny because it's marketing but he says if it doesn't have physical square foot um demarcations you know he has a grid that you actually snap together and put in the raised bed and if you don't have your beds physically demarcated then it's not square foot gardening which i highly disagree with because i've been doing square foot gardening for 20 years and it's still square foot gardening but that's just me you know i think people when they start they like to demarcate the the soil so that they have a clear picture of where to plant things. But now I can see it without having to do it. I just use my hand trowel and draw a line in the soil, and then I plant everything. And um, and it's a really efficient use of space. I get a lot of stuff out of one bed. 
I mean, you know, one row of radishes in square foot gardening is 64. It's, it's, you know, one square foot, uh, sorry, one, one square foot by four square feet. That's one row in, in a four by four square foot bed basically. And I've got, I can get 64 radishes out of that space, which is pretty cool. That technique also helps a lot with succession planting, right? Doesn't he have, I mean, I didn't know he was an engineer and now it all makes sense. It all makes sense. So he has a plan for succession, right? Yes. And which is what we are worst at. Could you describe that? I am too. It's so funny because when you have a small space, you kind of have to plant it all at once. And then what you're left with is like, okay, now what? You know, um, where Mel's theory, which is kind of comes from the French intensive where when something comes out, something else goes immediately in. So his philosophy is once you've set up your beds, you never need a shovel again because you're dealing with everything on a square foot by square foot basis. So you pull out your radishes, you add a handful of compost, and that square foot can be planted again with something else. So um, it's that's the theory. And in, in practice, it works too. I've done that with Quick vegetables will come up like the radishes and then I'll replace them with lettuces when they come out and that gets me through the season. So there's no resting period or rotational systems? There is. Uh, you know, for me, I use, uh, that's where the combination of biointensive methods comes in because one of Jevon's big things is planting 60% of your land with co uh, compost or um, carbon crops. And so I use one raised bed per, uh, winter season to grow a cover crop and that rotates and I will rotate my beds, you know, depending on what was grown in them. I, I keep a record of what was grown in them. So I don't plant in the same place for three or four years. Um, but for Mel, you know, he's, he wants you to plant stuff kind of sporadically all over. And so when you pull out a kale, you put a tomato in or something like that, you know, so it's different. You're not planting the same thing in the same place afterwards. You know, I think Jevons was an engineer too. It's interesting. We have two engineers, but it sounds like you've done kind of a mashup or mm -hmm. remix, if you will, of, of these methods. Yeah. And what, what have you taken from each and how have they worked for you together? So I, I started in a community garden plot, so I had very little space to work with. So I, I really started with square foot gardening. So I've got my four by four beds there. And um, I used, initially I used uh, Mel's soil mix, not in the new book, but in the original Rodale book, which was a combination of a whole bunch of things. Now he's, the, the formula is basically compost, uh, peat moss, and vermiculite. And I've switched to coir instead of uh, peat moss because it's a waste product instead of, uh, you know, a 3,000-year-old fossilized <laughs> bog that we can't replace. Um, and there's so many arguments around that also, but I won't talk about that right now. I'm with you. Yeah. I, it, it's, I, the science I've seen on it, peat moss is very bad. We shouldn't be yeah. using it. Yeah. It, but it's, it's, it's like crack for gardeners. I know. It's so easy and convenient, right? Well, and it's also in everything you buy. So certain companies are starting to move away from it. Malibu Compost uses coir instead of peat moss, which is why I use it for my client gardens uh, if they want to go in the um, biodynamic direction. Um, there's, you know, and I buy 
Coyer for making my own soil amendments for uh, myself and clients, uh, even if they don't want to go biodynamic. So I've used the 4 by 4 format and the square foot gardening format. And then when I learned John Jevons' method, I started growing grains. So I'd like, I, I, I'm not at, I'm not at 60% uh, of growing my land with carbon and cal and carbon, carbon and compost crops, but I am about 25 to 30%. So I'm doing a cover crop. I'm usually trying to grow a grain. I'll do corn, you know, sweet or popping corn. And that biomass feeds my compost bin to the point that I, I most of the time don't need to bring anything else in. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And that's, that's the goal for me is to be as sustainable on site as possible. Let's talk about that though, because you and I both have, we all have soil problems yeah. here. What are, what are your soil problems? So in my, well, in both gardens, we have lead. And uh, they're very, the soil's very sandy on top of that. When you say both gardens, you're talking about the community garden and your backyard. And my backyard, yes, exactly. So the community garden, I did a soil test and it came up with high lead and high zinc. Mm. And my zinc issue is really perplexing because lead is like, okay, just don't grow beets, chard, and spinach, and, or, you know, grow and raise beds and whatever. But zinc binds up nutrients. And so I, at the time, I had amply supplied nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but my plants looked completely anemic and sad, and they weren't growing. And I was like, something's up. And I'm tracking it back to the fact that I watered from a galvanized bucket for about 13 years, which is zinc-coated. Um, I don't know if that is the entire reason. Um, there's also, we're in the flight path of the Santa Monica airport, uh, and there's a lot of brake dust that comes off of the street and from Sentinella. So it's a possibility that it came from those those factors as well. So I tried to phytoremediate uh, by planting things that pull uh, zinc, sorry, that pull zinc out of the soil. Self-serving question. We need to do this. What, <laughs> what, what plants did you plant? So I was planting, I planted milk thistle and I, um, I planted chicory and those two of the things were, okay, those are the two things I planted. There was a third thing I planted. I can't remember what it is. I'm sorry. Um, and then, but the thing that really pulls lead out of the soil, we can't get seeds for in this country. And I, I'm, I, it's not hemp. <laughs> it's not hemp. It's called penny, penny something. Oh, I can't remember. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Yeah. But, um, I was scouring the internet for seed sources and I couldn't find any, um, anyway, what I did is I planted for a whole winter season. I planted and then I pulled them out and I got a, t a soil test again and my zinc was worse. And, <laughs> and the reason why the zinc was worse is because I had been advised to add some gypsum as well. And I added probably too much gypsum because as you know, with soil amendments, the precise amount is really important. And I was like, eh, it's pretty much what it is, you know, what the, what the amount they're calling for. More is better. Right? More, right. More <laughs> is always better. Right. And so more meant I lowered the pH of my soil to the point that the zinc became more available. 
Mm-hmm. So keeping your soil alkaline is really key when you have a zinc problem. Oh, dear. <laughs> and lead too, right? And lead. But our soil here is... Is it? It's very alkaline. It is Our naturally. soil is naturally alkaline. I, I always get the two but mixed vegetables up. vegetables don't like alkaline soil, which is the other conundrum, right? <laughs> well, you know, we my... We grow zinc good. Right. Yeah, we do zinc really well. Uh, the My soil is usually around 7, but it was 7.2 when I finished um, doing the soil test after the, my, the phytoremediation. So I was like cursing myself (laughs) for a wasted season. And I I basically switched my modality to just adding compost and doing compost tea and thinking that maybe there's something in the microbiology that will bind up this zinc for me. And since then, I've been brewing compost tea from my own active batch thermal composting system that I've been doing. And I've seen a difference. I haven't gotten the soil tested, but my stuff is growing a lot better. You mentioned earlier Mel's mix, what he fills his raised beds with. I wonder if you could go through your remix, as it were, of, of how you fill raised beds, because that's it's a real conundrum for urban and suburban gardeners, because if you have any number of raised beds, it's very, very expensive to fill it with purchased soil. If you try to order bulk soil, usually those orders are too massive to yeah. fill. And then, you, of course, you don't know what's in that soil either. So it's a real, real difficult thing to deal with. And mm-hmm. I wondered how you tackled the, the raised bed issue. Yeah, the raised beds uh, are volume, you know, and you have to fill that volume up. And the bulk soils, if the delivery charge doesn't kill you, the quality of the soil usually will, which is not quite up to snuff for me in terms of growing vegetables and biointensive situations. Most of the time it's, you know, it's a decent quality organic compost blend. They call it a 50-50 or an organic veggie mix. And it's higher in organic matter than some of the stuff that you buy off the shelf, but it's still not good enough for me. (laughs) So when I make compost, I mean, when I put together a bed, um, I, I try to use my own compost, but I usually have to import it. So um, I, in the past, have been using bumper crop, which is uh, an organic uh, compost amendment that has bad guano and chicken manure and worm castings and stuff like that in it that are pretty, it's, I think it's pretty good quality stuff. But now I'm using Malibu compost um, for the kind of the economical version. If I could use Stephen Winbrandt's massively amazing biodynamic compost, I would. Um, but most people don't have the budget for that. But so I, I start with compost and then I mix in coir and I do about, it, so here's the funny thing. I'm terrible at math. And so my formulas don't add up to hundred percent, but it's easier to measure if you just think of it this way. I do 60% compost, 40% coir, And then (laughs) in addition to that, I add, um, coffee grounds that have been spent and recovered from the, you know, coffee houses around town. I add some organic vegetable fertilizer, usually Dr. Earth or, you know, EB stone or whatever's available, but I'm actually making my own fertilizer right now, which I'm not, I'm not really reporting on that yet because I'm, I don't know if it works yet. Fascinating. <laughs> Making it with the neighbors or. No, right. No, no my, the, the little children the, next door. Those noisy children, <laughs> we solve the problem. Exactly. No, I'm, um, I'm experimenting with using 
Algerian kelp and seabird guano. And I'm using blood meal because I have it, which again makes me a hypocrite about the whole biodynamics um, fermented (laughs) preparation thing. But I have it from uh, a while ago and I'm like, I'm going to use it. So I'm using that. And then I mix in some Epsom salts for the magnesium and sulfur and whatnot. So that's what I'm playing with. I don't know yet what kind of impact it has on the soil, but I'm really trying to get away from fertilizers altogether because, again, a really healthy soil with good microbiology doesn't require it. So I'm kind of trying to get in that direction. You know, another thing you touched on in your talk was shade because that's another thing that urban gardeners have to deal a lot with. We both have huge trees in our yards mm-hmm. and not a lot of actual sun, at some, especially at some times of the year. How have you dealt with that? Yeah, the shade in here in the garden is uh, sufficient because of this giant Brazilian pepper tree that we have. So the ve- the vegetable beds are situated to the very, very back of the garden, which is mostly in the summer full sun. But in the winter, there's a couple hours where the shadow of the tree falls on it, which is okay. Because by then we're growing cool weather crops and it doesn't matter if they get full sun anyway. The thing that most people are dealing with is buildings and trees, you know, blocking their space. And so... Uh, What I've been telling people is if you have less than five hours of sunlight, you can stick to the greens, kale, you know, chard, collard greens and lettuces and mustard greens and that kind of thing. Because those will grow in, you know, four hours, maybe even fewer sunlight hours, direct direct sunlight hours. Uh, Root crops are also supposed to fare pretty well in shade. Potatoes, carrots, parsnips, turnips, beets, etc., And I think for myself, herbs work really great in the shade. I think people who only have a couple of hours of sunlight can usually get away with growing the the woody herbs. They might get a little leggy, meaning long uh, spaces between the leaf sets, but they generally handle uh, shade pretty well. I've always had this theory that in Southern California, the sun is so intense that we don't need as much sun as other people do. And and sometimes I, in my garden, I think in terms of shade, like think, you know, these things are getting baked. Mm-hmm. I need to, I, I need to uh, figure out a way to, to save these guys from frying in the sun. But, um, I, I, I tend to not worry about hours too much, even in the winter, I still, even in the winter, our sun's very bright. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think a lot about, uh, things like reflected light you know, just in the ambient light, our, our plants seem to do really pretty well, even in the shade here, which may not be true, like in Seattle, you know, so this is, right. this is insider baseball for the Southern California crowd, but I think you can get away with a lot. Yeah. Are you using reflecting boards or anything like that? We are not, but we have like, um, a garden shed very near our, uh, beds, which is pale yellow, mm-hmm. you know? So it's bouncing light. It's bouncing, yeah. Maybe we should hang a giant disco ball. That would be spectacular. That would be beautiful. That would be awesome. The The plants would appreciate. They'd be doing a little dance. They like music, apparently. The studies have shown. Now they've taken the discussion off uh, topic, way yeah. off topic. You also have integrated animals into your uh, home landscape here, and I wonder yes. if we could talk a little bit about that. There's uh, what is there? How many animals are there? Sixty, thirty thousand plus. <laughs> what is that? So Four. we have we have she has a herd of Angus beef, right? Yeah. I so I mean, want a mini cow. A let mini me tell cow, you, right? Yeah, I really want a mini cow. Um, yeah. 
but it's probably not going to happen. It's going to be like a Japanese restaurant where you pick the fish that you want to eat, right? <laughs> if you were not vegetarian. That's so really mortifying tiny. to me. But anyway. yes, I understand being in touch with your food is really important. So I, I respect that. Um, so we have four chickens and they uh, they all lay. Right now, a couple of them are molting. So they've stopped or slowed, slowed down. And uh, But we're still getting pretty regular eggs. And... Their poop goes in the compost bin, and that compost becomes food for the garden, and they get scraps from the garden, so they're cleaning up. When things aren't good enough for us to eat, we give it to them, and they help uh, eat grubs from the compost bin too, which I really appreciate because... Oh, yeah, I love that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those gnarly, white, translucent-headed green beetle grubs. That and they are like chicken... They love them so much. Yeah, they somebody fight over them and run around. And... I think it's John Lyons who called them chicken shrimp or something <laughs> like that. Where they, yeah, so they're it's they are like chicken it's shrimp. gourmet chicken shrimp, and and they, I you know, I'll I'll sift a pile of compost or I'll just dig through there and I'll pull out fifty grubs, and they're happy as clams. I used to leave them out for the crows before we got the the chickens, but um, I think the raccoons would actually come and take them. <laughs> or the skunks. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. The good protein for all sorts of critters. Absolutely. Yeah. And you also have bees. Yes, we do. So we have a, a rescued hive. They were actually in residence at Ocean View Farms when we discovered them, and they had formed, they had drawn comb around a garden rake so that they were drawing comb across the tines of the garden rake and we, uh, Rob McFarland of Honey Love helped me. Well, I actually just videotaped him while I was wearing the suit. So I felt like I was really involved, but I wasn't. Um, you know, I, I gave him a frame that I had wrapped with string so that it would hold the, the uh, comb in place. And we cut it out, brought it over here. And we're up to five boxes right now. Uh, and we'll harvest probably at the end of this month. We'll see what we get. That's fantastic. Yeah. Because so, it couldn't have been a very big hive since it was just a, a rake hive. Right. right. <laughs> so it probably wasn't that many bees to start with, but they seem like they've really uh, taken hold. That's yeah, great. they have. Uh, this, this, this hive is now two years old. We got them in November. It's almost two years old. So November, two years ago. And um, last year, our first harvest was pretty small. We only got about eight pounds of honey, but we wanted to make sure they had enough you know, for themselves. So that they would grow, grow big and strong, but they're unstoppable now. They're really they're they're thriving. Well, they love your pepper tree. They seem to be uh, yes, yeah. You guys, this this tree is huge, and it is it's um, blooming now. So it just has a curbillion tiny little <laughs> tiny little insignificant flowers all over it that the bees are all hanging out in. So her whole backyard is humming because all of the bees are in the tree right now. Yeah, and they're not just bees from our colony. They're definitely from a neighboring colony as well because. We've come out early in the morning, and the tree's been buzzing, and our bees aren't up yet. So we know it's it's a, more than just our colony that's enjoying the the multifunction tree we have going on out there that provides shade, uh, safety for the for the chickens, uh, which are who are stationed underneath it, and food, pollen, and nectar for the bees. You so, know, oh, well, I was going to say, I just yesterday I learned something to do with the peppercorns. 
Oh. Because they're, I mean, some people eat them, but mm-hmm. they also, I've found out, are irritating. Some people react poorly to them. You yes, do, yeah. I am, I am not, um, so. yeah, I'm not supposed to have pepper. So at all, at any all, kind of pepper. <laughs> yeah. Oh, these these particularly even people who are fine with pepper. These these uh, pink peppercorns that they hang down in clusters from these trees. I don't know what the range of these trees are, but they're very common here in Southern California. And I had heard that they were a, a pepper that you could wild forage and use as a pepper substitute. Mm-hmm. But they are irritating to some people. But I discovered that you can. Uh, soak them in oil uh, to, you know, draw out a capacin, and Ooh. then you use that oil as a salve or st- as a straight oil as like an arthritis or a muscle rub, like a hot, a heating rub. Oh wow, like icy hot. Like icy, yeah, yeah. Cool. To, yeah, for injuries or arthritis or whatever. Fix so. vapor rub the there, natural way. Yes, <laughs> there's another function for your tree. That's really cool. Um, ours, you know, good and bad. Ours is sterile, so it produces the flowers, but it never sets actual peppercorns, oh. which means we don't ever get the runners. Which is why, you know. Pepper trees, people hate them because they're super invasive and they send up runners all over the place. And we don't get that, which is a nice thing. But but as a trade-off, we don't get the peppercorns. And I know back to pollinators, you feel very strongly about attracting pollinators in the gardens that you design. How do you, how do, you do that and why is that important? Pollinators are so important because they help um, not only make fruit happen, but there are some other beneficials that... Um, help keep pests at bay in your garden. And so I plant beneficial insectaries to attract ladybugs and lacewings and my favorite parasitic wasps to the garden because those, I love what they do. It's very macabre, but they poke holes in aphids and lay their young inside them, which makes them a host for more. It's like the movie Alien. Yeah, (laughs) basically. So it's it's combating nature with nature so we don't have to work as hard. So having having a hedgerow or a perimeter or some pots of marigolds and nasturtiums and umble flowers like fennel and alyssum and cilantro when it goes to seed and parsley and celery when they go to seed all really play a, 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 a beneficial factor in the garden. I just I just think that you know people get intimidated about gardening and the main thing is to just do it. Just garden, because you'll fail, and you'll fail big, and that's how you learn. I learn every year from my big mistakes, and it's part of gardening. And there's this gardener's amnesia that happens where you forget every year the stuff you did wrong, and you go and do it again until you finally remember, and then you you have a success. So that's my word of encouragement for everyone. Leslie, Christy, you're a very active blogger. You're an author. You're a podcaster, too. Where can people get in touch with you and... Uh, buy your book and experience your blog. So I am at gardennerd.com. It's G-A-R-D-E-N-E-R-D.com. And I do classes, consulting, food garden design and installation. And um, the podcast is the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast on iTunes. Um, on all the social networks as Garden Nerd One or gardennerd.com um, and you know Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's, I'm good, glad to hear your tweet. Yes, we tweet. <laughs> I have I have a gal who helps me uh, tweet too, so it's not just me. It's it's a couple of us, and um, and then there's a YouTube channel with some helpful growing videos and whatnot as Garden Nerd uh, on YouTube. 
Cool. Well, people will have to check that out. Thank you, Christy, for being on the Root Simple podcast. Oh, one more thing. And the book. I forgot about the book. How did we forget that? Right. And so the book is Gardening for Geeks, and you can get that. uh, You can either go to gardeningforgeeksbook.com, and on the buy page, it'll show you all the places that you can pick it up, or go to your local bookstore and get it from them. If people go through your blog, though, is that better for, for you? You know, I have a little um, affiliate link to some of the websites where the, the book is being sold. Um, so that always helps me. Sure. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you, Christy, again for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is fun. That was Christy Wilhelmy of Gardennerd.com. Through her website, you can find links to her book and to her podcast, The Garden Nerd's Tip of the Week. In closing, I want to thank all of you who have left comments in the iTunes store for us. We've got a bunch of interesting guests lined up for the winner, and please let us know in the show notes on rootsimple.com if there's anyone you'd like us to have on. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 